Hi, Montview. Sophie here, coming to you all the way from Connecticut. As you can see, I am not in a formal church setting this morning. Due to the pandemic, I had to improvise and create a sacred space of my own. Maybe you can relate. I think a lot of us have been learning how to create our own sacred spaces these days. That said, let's start with a reading from the book of Matthew. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate, and all were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. The word of God for the people of God. This story has an almost nostalgic resonance. It must have been one of the first Bible stories that I learned in Sunday school as a child. We retell it every year and each time it captures our attention and makes us wonder. Bread and fish, such concrete, ordinary things. And yet out of what was too little, Jesus somehow created enough, more than enough. If I'm honest, Though, reading this story this year during a pandemic feels very different. What was once uplifting now feels like a painful reminder of everything the world is not. These days, it seems like miracles, even small ones, are few and far between. We know that the way our world is structured today, too often it seems like there is too little to go around. A finite number of material things, too few, not enough. The narrative of not enough is everywhere, especially these days, not enough ventilators or hospital beds, not enough food for our children in the absence of school lunch, not enough money after losing a job, not enough time to make up the rent by August, not enough patience to deal with people, much less people we disagree with. When we look around at all this, it can feel difficult to even imagine for one moment, one afternoon, a world in which everyone is fed and healthy. Too much to hope for, to kumbaya, if you will. But it's not that simple, of course. 
And as I've continued reading this story, as is so often the case with biblical texts, I've realized that I've been missing some crucial details that were left out of the Sunday school version I was taught as a kid, and for good reason. This stuff is pretty dark. Earlier in this chapter, right before today's reading begins, John the Baptist, an outspoken prophet and a beloved leader among the people, was publicly and brutally executed by a corrupt government, King Herod, for selfish political reasons. John the Baptist's death was a huge blow to his community, and this is where our story picks up, right as Jesus learns the news that his close friend and mentor is dead. So what does he do? He takes a boat and withdraws to a deserted shore by himself. This wasn't just a random day trip. He was grieving. Jesus left on purpose because he needed to be alone to process the loss of his loved one. God knows our pain because Jesus knew our pain, human pain, in all of its searing forms, including grief. We see that here. To the point where Jesus in English withdrew alone, overcome with that grief as he experienced the pain inherent in human existence, the pain of loss. And if you're asking the question, what would Jesus do? The answer here, I think, is practice good self-care. But what is most striking about this story, I realize now, is the way in which it allows space for grief pain and loss to seamlessly mingle with hope, joy, and plenty. This is our gospel. This miracle, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. It doesn't take place in some otherworldly space, serene and free of suffering, the opposite. It's smack dab in the middle of it. What I hear in this story is that hope exists in the midst of grief, especially even in a broken world, full of disease, poverty, political corruption, and violence back then and just like ours. Kumbaya indeed. You've probably noticed that the word kumbaya comes with certain connotations of naive idealism in our culture, I think we often imagine people joining hands and singing, rejoicing in a world that is already perfect and exactly as it should be. I was curious, so I looked up the word kumbaya because I couldn't remember what it meant. It means pass by here. Kumbaya, my lord. Pass by here, my lord. These words of the famous song don't sound to me like a cheery celebration of world peace that I always thought it was. It sounds more like a plea, desperate, a prayer for help in a world that is far from peaceful. Pass by here, my Lord, give us hope because we're running a little low on hope right now. I've been thinking a lot about what it means to have Christian hope specifically lately. And um, 
I've really been asking myself, trying to figure out what it means to be a capital B believer, a follower of Christ. What does that mean? This is sort of understandable, particularly given that I just finished my first year at Divinity School, where I've been exploring this strange call to ministry that I feel. And maybe you'd think that as the daughter of a certain pastor, Clover Beale, I would have worked through most of these questions at some point earlier in my life, but I believe that these things, these kinds of questions are ones that we should never really stop asking. You see, I think that this story of the loaves and the fish is a story of Christian hope. It is a vision of how God intends for us to live in relationship with one another and our planet on earth as it is in heaven, a vision of what the beloved community could look like, even for just a moment. John Lewis, the civil rights activist, leader, congressman, and ordained minister, passed away earlier this month. He was in so many ways a prophetic voice in our time. He spoke passionately throughout his life about the importance of envisioning the beloved community on earth. And he reflected on this once saying, the struggle was always about bringing competing forces together, human beings to create a sense of beloved community, a sense of family out of the good that is already there. And to make it real, he says, you paint a picture like an artist using a canvas. Because if you live as if you are already a part of that community, if you can even have faith that it is already there, then for you, it already is. The truth behind Lewis's words is embodied in the gospel narrative. The belief that the better, safer, more equitable world that we are trying to build has already been done through Christ. It's not an invitation to complacency, though. We tell these stories in the Christian tradition because the images in these stories give us something to imagine, something to hope for, and by extension, something to work toward. They're intended to motivate us to work harder, to make this vision a reality, because we know it is possible. For what does it mean to be a practicing Christian if not to believe with every fiber of our being that a better world is possible, a world in which the sick are healed, the tired have rest, the grieving are comforted, and everyone has enough to eat? Willie Jennings is a professor at my school, and he said once that hope is not a sentiment, it is a discipline. The vision of the beloved community, I think, is required in order for us to have faith enough to continue to wake up every day, practicing the discipline of hope. It's hard, draining. We're going to have to practice good self-care along the way. But in the words of John Lewis, there may be setbacks, disappointments, interruptions. Even if it fails to happen in your lifetime, know that it will happen in somebody's lifetime. Believe it. 
and you have to do all you can while you occupy this space. This is your calling, your mission, and your moral mandate. So be bold, be courageous, stand up, speak out, and find a way to create the beloved community, the beloved world, a world of peace and a world that recognizes dignity. This is why we gather together. Even though we may technically be apart, whether separated by computer screens or across state lines or separated by chasms created by our own grief, causing us to withdraw like Jesus did, overwhelmed by everything the world is not. Take care of yourself. Take care of one another, knowing that God grieves with us. Believe that one day, though, we will be able to come together again and break bread and give thanks. It will happen. Indeed, it already has. Thanks be to God. <laughs>